I was <clears throat> reminded as we were worshiping of uh, about 10 years ago, we as a family went down to Disneyland, our, our um, sojourn with our kids down to Disneyland, and we thought we would go to an African-American church because um, my kids had never experienced that. And so we did that, and it was an experience, if any of you have ever been in a church like that. And as we go back out to the car and we're driving away, and one of the kids, it might have been Cass or Hannah, they said, it's like those people really love God. <laughs> and I was having that experience this morning. You people love God, right? Hillside is going to be at the head of the line in the worship service as we proceed to the Lord. So thank you for that. That filled me this morning. Uh, this series, Encounters with Jesus, I've been listening to it at Modern Technology, right? You put all your sermons online, and so I've been listening to these messages so that I could get a little sense of what's the journey that you've been on in these last few weeks. And I love these stories. When Derwin asked me, would you come and speak, and this is our topic, it took me about two seconds to say yes, because I love these stories in the Gospels where Jesus has this encounter with somebody, an actual encounter, an actual conversation. And I think part of the reason why that draws me in is because sometimes I can wonder whether I've actually met Jesus. I grew up in a Christian family. I've been a Christian my whole life. I was baptized about 40 years ago as a teenager. And yet for lots of my life, if you had asked me, have you met Jesus? I would have said, uh, I think so. You know what that feels like? I knew quite a bit about Jesus. I could pass exams about Jesus, but had I met Jesus? Well, the people in these stories that you've been hearing actually met Jesus, and it wasn't a question, right? If they'd gone home that night and someone had said, who did you meet today? They would say, I met this man, Jesus. And then they would tell the story of what happened. We see in these stories Jesus meeting and interacting with real people, people just like you and me, regular folks. And I don't know about you, but when I read these stories and I spend a little time with them, it starts to kind of stir up my desire to meet Jesus. Jesus, could I meet you this way in a way that seems real? Obviously, Jesus is not walking among us with flesh and blood anymore, but he is present. So could I meet you, Jesus? The other thing that some of these stories do, at least these stories we're looking at today, is that they show a kind of movement in the relationship. Lots of the stories, I think most of them that you've been listening to, and there's lots of these in the Gospels, where Jesus meets one person for this one event and something happens. They have this experience. And I want experiences like that, but my question often is what happens the next day? Because in my life, I have to live the next day. I can't live in last Thursday afternoon when I met Jesus. I, my life keeps going. So what happens as we keep going? What happened to the woman at the well? 
Remember the woman who had had five husbands and Jesus has this conversation with her and I go, I wonder what happened the next week in her life. Or what about Bartimaeus who was one of the blind men that Jesus healed? What happened to him two or three weeks later? As now he could see, he was having a whole new way of life. Or, or Zacchaeus, the tax collector, remember him? He climbed up in the tree. What about a year later? What about two years later if we'd met Zacchaeus? What, what was different in his life? What had changed? I wonder because it's my situation. I want the encounter with Jesus, but I also want to know what happens tomorrow. What happens next week? We say that we want to become more like Jesus, but do we? Like, does it happen over time? Does something actually happen in us that knowing and living with Jesus actually makes a difference? Well, I think that these stories today, and we're given this gift because we see Jesus interacting with Peter over some time, not just a one-off event. So I want to grab three of these stories and briefly look at them. This morning, I've called this three movements just because I thought that sounded cool, right? Three movements with Jesus and Peter. So this first one I call the meeting. And this is in Luke 5, 1 to 11. And I'll read this story. <clears throat> Before I do, imagine that you are a stock trader. Any stock traders? No stock traders. I was trying to think, what sort of jobs do people in Hillside have? But imagine that you're a stock trader and you're sitting in your office and Jesus comes in and he gives you this tip just before closing, just before market closing. And you're a little suspicious, but you go, okay. And you put way too much money on this tip and instantly it blows up. Or what if you're a teacher? Any teachers? Gotta have some teachers. And you're dealing with one particular child and you can't get this, this concept through to them and it's so frustrating. You've been working for for days and days and days and trying to get them to understand. And Jesus walks into your classroom and he bends over and he whispers into your ear this illustration and he says, use that. And so you do and just like that, the child gets it. Penny drops, he understands what you're talking about. If you can imagine that sort of thing happening, then you get a little taste of what Peter's experience was on this day that we find in Luke chapter five. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Well, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. We've caught nothing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. 
So they signaled their partners in the boat, in the other boat, to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, Simon. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and they followed him. Let's pray. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, who is already here, would you fill us? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive the gift that you have for us this morning. So let's notice a few things going on in this story. First of all, Jesus comes to Peter at his job, not at church, not at Bible study, not when Peter was doing something spiritual. He wasn't even praying. He likely was not thinking about God at all. What he was thinking about was the fact that he hadn't caught any fish. Can you imagine Jesus showing up at your job? And don't you tend to think that if you're going to meet Jesus at all, chances are it's going to be here. Or it's going to be at Bible study. Or it's going to be when you're doing your devotions. But Jesus comes to Peter when he is not paying attention at all. He's at work. He's going about his regular business. I love that about Jesus. Because when I'm here and I'm seeking Jesus, I'm trying really hard. Right? I get myself in the right position. If I do all the right things internally, then maybe Jesus will come. But Jesus is coming to you when you're not even asking, when you're not even thinking about him. Paula Darcy, an author and speaker, she says, Jesus comes to us disguised as our life. Jesus comes to us disguised as our life. What kind, of, what kind of feelings get evoked for you when you think about Jesus showing up at work? Maybe not that great. <laughs> Second thing to notice, Jesus comes to Peter after a failed night. They'd been fishing all night and had not caught anything. And the miracle, I was thinking, you know, the miracle would have been amazing even if it'd been a regular day. Even if it had been a regular catch, whatever a regular catch was, the miracle still would have been amazing. And yet he waits for Peter to be unsuccessful. He waits for Peter to be in this frustrated place, this kind of weakened place, tired. I don't know about you, but I 
tend to think that um, the best time for Jesus to show up for me is when I'm in a strong place, right? When I've actually been reading my Bible for a few days, not one or two days, like a few days. Like I can get something under my belt, you know, like I'm in this good place now. Now it would be good for Jesus to show up because I could say, oh, Lord, I've been thinking about you. <laughs> right? And Jesus might say, oh, shoot, I'll come back next week when you're not thinking about me. <laughs> Thirdly, Jesus eases up on Peter. I love this about this story. He eases up on him. How do you hear those stories that happen here? It happens in other stories too. When Jesus comes up to someone and he kind of says, follow me, and it says they drop everything and they follow God. They follow along. And I go, really? Like think of that actually happening in your life. You're in your classroom. Jesus walked, Jesus, you do you even know it's Jesus? It's kind of a weird guy. He's dressed funny maybe and he walks up to you and he says, follow me. And he turns and he goes, you're not doing that, right? You're going, who, how, who let you in here, right? And yet these people are doing, I used to read these stories like, what is wrong with me? Because look at what these guys are doing. They're dropping everything and following after Jesus. And all I could do is compare myself. I can hardly follow after Jesus when I've been with him my whole life. How do they do that? Faith has often seemed like such a struggle, such hard work. How could people just like that up and follow Jesus? And obedience was even a bigger struggle, but not even so much of whether to obey or whether or not. Sometimes I'd be happy to obey if I just knew what it was that you were asking me to do. If I could just tell, like these guys had it easy, right? Because Jesus says, follow me, and then he starts walking along. And so what do they do? Well, wouldn't it be great if you could just start walking along with Jesus? And you go, well, I'm following. What are you doing? Oh, I'm following Jesus. Right? But we don't get to do that. We wrangle and struggle internally. And what does it even mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to obey Jesus? I would if I could, if I even knew what was going on there. But our story ends like this. They pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and followed him. But that is not the whole story. It's always a good idea to stand back a little bit from these stories and go, what led up to this? What went on before? And you don't have to go very far back. You see back in chapter four, this story is in chapter five. In chapter four of Luke, we see that Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue in that area. Now, Peter and his friends being good Jews, they would have gone to synagogue every Sabbath. They would have heard Jesus. It tells a couple of stories of Jesus healing people in the synagogue service, of casting out demons in the synagogue service. And then, right after that story, it says, do you remember this, that Jesus goes to Peter's house and heals his mother-in-law, who had this fever, and he healed her. I, I like this progression here, that Jesus, there's this wider community, and Peter's kind of standing at the back there maybe somewhere. Jesus is doing these amazing things. And then he, he makes this circle a little bit smaller. 
into Peter's family. Now he's getting a little closer. And then on this day, he's right there. Now it's Jesus himself. He's been easing up. He's been giving Peter time, getting closer and closer and closer. I wonder if you've maybe been feeling that a bit over these last weeks. Is Jesus getting closer? Is he leaning in on you? And you're kind of wondering why he's still hanging around, and there he is. He keeps on leaning in. It's not easy to get rid of him. The fourth thing to notice, Jesus blesses Peter. And this is kind of what we notice about this story, this miracle, this huge catch of fish. And it's this amazing gift. I mean, he's a fisherman. He gets how amazing this gift is. Jesus wants to get get Peter's attention. And how does he do it? He blesses him. And I know for me, I usually tend to think when Jesus is going to get my attention, What's he going to do? He's going to show me where my sin is. He's going to let me know where the places are that I mess up. That's what I think. Maybe Jesus isn't who I think he is. Because right here, he blesses Peter like crazy to get his attention. Paul tells us in Romans that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. His kindness. And then Peter's response, he has two responses. The first is, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Now why, why that response? At first blush, that seems a little weird. Like, it's like you've been given the lottery. Would you not be jumping up and down with delight? Oh, thank you, Lord, thank you. That's what I've been praying for all these years. Thank you. That's not what Peter does. He falls to Jesus' feet and he says, go away from me. Peter is seized by this miracle. This word astonished has this connotation to it. He is seized, he is caught, he is held. And something is exposed in his heart. And in the face of his own shame, his response is to fall to the ground and turn away. Say, go away. Don't you do that? I do that. And we learn that response in the garden. Because when Adam and Eve disobeyed their father and he came looking for them, they had turned away from him. And the Lord walked in the garden that day and he said, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Adam? But Adam had turned his face away from the Lord. And I can see Jesus doing that in this story with Peter as he falls to the ground, he turns away, his hands are lifted up, this automatic response, go away from me. And I just imagine Jesus coming down and he says, where are you, Peter? Where are you? He doesn't go anywhere. And if you were Peter, what are you doing in that moment? 
You're looking at the ground and you're seeing Jesus' sandals and you're saying, will you please leave? You have got the wrong guy here. It's exactly what Moses said. That's just like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. God likes people that think that they're not worth being there. If you think that God's got the wrong person by coming after you, that's a sign that he's got exactly the right person. Exactly the right person. But then the second half of Peter's response is, as I mentioned already, they drop everything and they follow Jesus. Perhaps the fact that Jesus remained there. It's one of the reasons why I love kind of entering into these stories with your imagination. Because if you're Peter, you're down on the ground and you're going, where is Jesus? Well, he's standing right there. He has not left. And I wonder if it's because of that fact that something happened in Peter that made him go, where else am I going to go except with this person? who loves me like this? And it makes me want to ask the question, what what needs to happen in you that you would drop everything and follow Jesus? What would need to happen? Maybe a revelation of who Jesus is. Not a working harder on your part, but a revelation of who Jesus is that would allow you to just let go and follow him. And then finally, Jesus' response in this story says, don't be afraid, Peter. Come, follow me. I know you. I choose you. I remain with you. I am not going anywhere, Peter. Come and follow me and join me in my mission to love people and rescue people. Come and follow me. Second movement, the turning point. I better speed up because Derwin said, you've got to be done at 20 after. So we got <laughs> This story is in Mark chapter 8, and I've got to get us to it. Let's, let's get us to it quickly. Immediately following this story in Luke 5, we read that Jesus heals a man with leprosy, and then, and then the story that Ben preached on last week, Bringing the people through the roof, that's the right story, right? Bringing the people through the roof, getting the sawdust in their face, and this guy comes and gets placed at Jesus' feet. The story moves on from there. Peter and his friends, they're hearing Jesus teach, teaching with amazing authority, teaching that they had never heard before. Something powerful in it, talking about the Father, about the kingdom of God, about a new way of living. And they listen, they pay attention, they ask questions. But it's interesting, I don't know if you've ever noted that right away the disciples kind of disappear for a bunch of chapters. Jesus calls them and then you don't hear about them anymore. I go, oh, what happened to the disciples? Well, the reason why we ask that question is because we think that when Jesus meets you and calls you, he's going to put you to work right now hey, I've got a job for you to do. And maybe what he's saying to you is sit down there and watch. Just watch and listen and discover who I am 
wait a while. So Peter and his friends continue to see and experience amazing things. Their relationship with Jesus began with miracles and the miracles just keep on coming. Jesus raises this little boy from death. He feeds up to 20, 30,000 people with wives and kids and all that with a couple of loaves and fish. He even, have, you, have you ever imagined being, you know in that one story he says to Philip, I think it's Philip, he says, I shouldn't do this because it makes me late, but imagine you're standing there and Jesus says, you know, you feed them. What? Like, one, like what actually happened there? I've seen in movies, you know, they try to, like something amazing happened there. Breaks one loaf of bread and, and these disciples are dumbstruck at what's going on. And they see that Jesus even has command over the weather. Like who would have guessed that? That he could command the ocean and the wind. And then one night even, we're, we're still getting there, but even one night this experience of Jesus walking on the water and, and they, see him, they see him coming and they think it's a ghost or something, this mirage, because people don't walk on water. What, what is that? And he comes up close. And Peter says, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out there. Like this is the same Peter that went, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And now he's saying, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to do that impossible thing that you're doing. And he does it. He does it. It's incredible. Something is shifting in Peter, right? Because he hasn't been doing very much. He's kind of been sitting there watching, but something is changing in him. And then this scene where we come, this second movement, I call this the turning point. One day Jesus is walking along the road with his friends and he turns and he asks, hey, uh, who do people say that I am? Well, they look around at each other and I wonder whether is this a trick question? Like what's, what's the right answer to this? And one of them takes some courage and says, uh, John the Baptist, some say John the Baptist. And another person pipes up and it says, uh, some say Elijah. And then the third person goes, or, or one of the prophets. Like he's one of, you know, he's kind of covering his bases, you know, or one of the prophets. Oh. Maybe they just walk along a little further and then, then Jesus says, and how about you? Who do you say that I am? And who do you think pipes up right at that moment? He stops. You are the Christ. In Matthew's version, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Like you can just imagine him standing there. You are the Christ. Peter nails it, gets the right answer. All these other guys are going, oh, shoot, you know, there's Peter again. <laughs> but that's an astounding thing to say. Like we hear these stories so often, but that's an amazing thing to say that he believes that Jesus is their Christ, their Messiah, the one who is going to come and deliver the people from this Roman oppression to take them back to live in this glorious place like David's kingdom of old, right? Of power and glory, God's people 
once again. Messiah, Christ, carried all of that and more. So Peter has got it, man. He has faith with a capital F. All these weeks and months, Jesus has been slowly revealing to them who he is, helping them to trust him, to love him, to follow him. And now, finally, they're beginning to get it. With this declaration, I think that Peter expects that they will now just move from miracle to miracle, glory to glory, power to power. Right? That's what Messiah was all about. The miracles are going to cast off the Romans, restore Israel again. But Jesus tells a very different story. Because it says, as soon as Peter said that, immediately Jesus began to teach them. It says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. What? Killed? No, 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 no. What, what kind of talk is that? That's not what a Messiah does. That's not what a Christ does. This is not the way to rescue us and to gain power, Jesus. It tells us in the text, it doesn't say what Peter says, but it says he rebukes Jesus, and I just imagine him saying things like this. This will never happen to you, Jesus. We've seen your power. This is not the way that a Messiah talks. We've seen your miracles. We've heard your preaching. It's time for strength and power. It's time for rescue and release from bondage. How often have you prayed a prayer like that? Now is the time. For all of that, Jesus, be who you are. Isn't this what you said, Jesus? Setting the prisoners free, releasing the oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor. Get behind me, Satan! That's what Jesus says. You are thinking like a man, not like God. Have you ever been rebuked by the Lord? And he does it not to harm you, but to free you. Because we're enslaved to a a worldly way of thinking. And I wonder in this moment whether he says, get behind me, Satan, to remind himself of Satan's temptation to Jesus. Hey, you can do this without any suffering. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Everything you want. Power and glory and adulation. You can have all of that. Just bow down and worship me. But you can have all of that. Power and glory. Peter was saying... We can do this with power and strength and control. We can take over. We can win. We can succeed. Well, Peter has faith here, but something still needs to change. He's no longer turning away in shame. 
He's even moving beyond walking on water. He's beginning to take his eyes off himself and look at Jesus. Jesus, you can do this. I believe in you. But he's still seeing Jesus through his flesh eyes, not through spirit eyes. And in Jesus' compassion, he says, there's more work to be done in you, Peter, and I'm going to do it. Jesus reveals to him and the others in that moment that he is not who they think he is. God is not who they think he is. God is not one to make a grand entrance and wipe out all of his enemies and letting everyone know that he's in charge. God is a God who enters into suffering in order to redeem it, to turn it. He enters into pain in order to heal it. He enters into death in order to destroy it. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. If you want to save your own life on your own, in your own way, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life to me and let me direct it, then you will know what true life is. They all knew what this meant, take up your cross. They had walked these roads where there's crosses lined up all the way as far as they could see with people, maybe some of their friends, hanging on those crosses. Jesus is saying, I'm asking you to do something you are never going to want to do. You will never willingly choose this on your own. But when I put my spirit in you, then you will follow me. Movement three. We're going to be a little late, buddy. Just a little bit. Movement three I call coming home. This final movement is the story that takes place at the end of John's gospel. And Peter has been living this amazing life with Jesus, seeing all that he's seen, and he knows Jesus really well. He loves Jesus. And we see him at the Last Supper telling Jesus that he will do anything for him. No more turning away in shame. I will die for you and with you. I'll go to prison with you. I will lay down my life for you. And it's as if Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Ah, Peter, you can't do what you think you can do. Have you ever prayed those kind of prayers, those kind of, oh, God, I'm going to do this. You and me, we can do this thing. I've got the faith. Thank you for my faith, for trust. I can do it. And perhaps the Lord, I think he receives that, and then maybe he tells us a story like this. Jesus turns to him and the other disciples, and he says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, all of these other dudes, not me. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, 
before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you and, and saying that? And your response, like mine, would say, no way. Vehemently, violently, Peter responds, even if I have to die, I will never disown you, Jesus. Peter is devoted. He thinks he knows his own heart. He doesn't. But very soon, just a few hours later, he is caught with fear as Jesus is arrested. And indeed, he denies that he even knows who Jesus is because of his own fear. The rooster crows and Peter weeps. But that's not the final movement. What comes next is, Peter and his friends have returned home to Galilee some days later. They're probably confused, exhausted. What's next? What's going to happen now? And they head back on their boat to go fishing. And they may well feel that they have returned to this place where they began all those years ago, back to the same lake, that same boat, that same job. How many times have you felt like that? That you've just gone back to the beginning because of your own failure. You go, I haven't learned anything. Feeling that nothing really has happened, that you have to start all over again. And maybe you think that nothing has really changed, but something has changed. Something has changed in Peter. I want you to imagine that you are there on that boat. You are Peter. I am Peter. And you're remembering that fear took over that night, that self-preservation had its way. You were so devoted. You were doing so well. But then you failed. We failed. Peter's on that boat. Perhaps he's wondering what these others think. Did, did they know what he did? Maybe they're all sort of looking at the ground. They don't really want to look at each other. And being back on this boat likely brings many memories of Jesus. They had been through a lot on these boats, right? They had seen miracles on these boats. And maybe he goes over it again and again and again. Oh, if I had only said, yes, yes, I'm with Jesus. He's my friend. I'm with him. If only I had said that. Why could I not have said that? But he hadn't. And in the silence, they see a man standing on the shore and he calls out, throw your nets on the other side of the boat and you'll catch some fish. What happens right then, right in that moment, what happens? Because you've been there before and you've heard that voice before. And so the nets go over and you wonder now is 
heart is beating a little bit. Could it be? Is it? Could it be? And the fish start coming in and they're hauling in the fish. And then in the, in the noise and the splashing of the fish, he hears John say, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. And what does Peter do? He can't get out of that boat fast enough. He puts on that garment and he runs to Jesus. Well, if there's ever a time that he should turn away in his own shame, it's right then. But something has happened. His body propels him. Something has happened in Peter. Listen to your body when Jesus calls you. Because when your mind is filled with shame and failure and guilt, maybe it's only left to your body to go, let's go, because this is the only place to go. Can't you just imagine Peter, right? He's splashing through the water. Why does he put on his coat? It's always a little weird to me. Like, it's catching up more water, slowing him down. But he gets, gets there and he starts to go. And you wonder, what's going through his mind? Maybe like the prodigal son, what am I going to say? Jesus, if, uh, forgive me. Um, uh, may, make me one of your junior uh, disciples. Right? He's thinking all of this and he, and he comes up and Jesus says, uh, get some of those fish, let's have breakfast. And Jesus, Peter turns and he sees that coal fire, the same fire that he saw in that courtyard when he said he didn't even know who Jesus was. Man, he is waiting for it, right? And so they sit down and eat breakfast. And this takes three words to say, but it doesn't take you two seconds to eat breakfast. Breakfast takes a little time. And Peter's sitting there. Oh boy. What's coming? He has no idea. Or he has maybe an idea, but he doesn't know who Jesus is yet. Because Jesus turns to him and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? In that moment, in all of your failure and fear, he says, Jill, William, Jay, do you love me? What do you say? Yes, Lord. And he says it again calling you by name. Do you love me? He doesn't wait for Peter to apologize. He doesn't wait for Peter to grovel and confess and make all kinds of plans to make it up for Jesus. He doesn't care about any of that. He says, do you love me? Three times. Feed my sheep. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. Let's pray. I want to take a couple of moments here and as you perhaps are reminded of some of your failures, some of your denials, 
some of the sin that has been attached to you. And you're sitting on that beach and Jesus is looking at you. He's saying, do you love me? Because I'm choosing you. Do you love me? Do you love me? I love that, uh, that story of Peter that we see, the, not just a one encounter, we see a series of encounters, because uh, the reality is Jesus doesn't want to just meet you in your life once. He actually wants to go on a journey with you. He wants to show up at your job, and he wants to show up in your home, and in your marriage, and in your family. He wants to show up on your streets, your neighborhood. He wants to show up in our city. And I, and I love the, the grace of that story. Peter wasn't a guy who had it together. He had it wrong more often than he had it right. <laughs> and we celebrate when he had it right. But his story is actually more about the faithfulness of Jesus than the faithfulness of Peter. And, and God's story in your life is more about the faithfulness of Jesus than the faithfulness of Kevin or Suzanne or Arlene or Brian. It's far more about the faithfulness of God in your life than what you can do for Him. And then when the Spirit came, look what happened to Peter. This guy had, who'd experienced the love of Jesus went on and changed the world. <laughs> we want to skip that step, and sometimes you'll have a moment even here on a Sunday where you go, God, we can do this. You know? I'd like to change the world with you. And Jesus knows we're not up for that. But as we're ready, as we encounter the living Christ and as we encounter His Spirit, He then sends us out to make a difference. And He wants to do that in you and He wants to do that in me. And not because of us, but in spite of us and because of His deep, deep love for us. The Lord our God delights in giving mercy. And may you know that as you go this week. May you know that the God of mercy, the God of grace, the God of deep, deep love and affection for you goes with you as you walk with him.